At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is foliar feeding month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 440th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who considers trees as partners in his farming projects. We're talking with Akiva Silver about working with trees as allies. Akiva owns and operates his 20-acre Twisted Tree Farm, a homestead, nut orchard, and nursery near the Finger Lakes region of New York. There he grows around 20,000 trees per year that are raised naturally without synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, or herbicides. Akiva is the author of Trees of Power, 10 Essential Arboreal Allies, released this month in paperback through our friends at Chelsea Green Publishing. He is dedicated to growing healthy trees, food, and family. Welcome to the show today, Akiva. Are you ready to rock? I'm ready. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. Uh, you know, I just grew up in the suburbs in Rochester, New York. Had a pretty ordinary childhood for the most part. And I just raced around between shopping malls and school and stuff like that and sports. But as I uh, grew uh, older and I left the house, started to travel around and experience different things, I came across this book about primitive living. It was this guy, Tom Brown Jr., and it's he, this guy goes, he, he goes into Stone Age technology, but like deeper. And uh, so his whole philosophy was like, you go into the woods and you pretty much, you go naked and you make everything, you know, your shelter, your clothing, all your food your fire, everything, all the tools you need. It was, the book was so inspiring to me. I was just like, I just, I want, I love nature. And I was like, I want to connect as deeply as possible. So I started studying that stuff uh, for years. I just became totally obsessed with it. And generally when I get into something, I, I just get obsessed with it because it's more exciting that way. I just spent like every minute I could in the woods. I'd go on camping trips. And when I wasn't, you know, if, if I was at home in the, in Rochester, I would just, I would just really, I would just find nature anywhere. You know, I'd find a thicket behind the Walmart or wherever, and I'd crawl in and, and I would study as closely as I could. And it was during that period of my life, I started to, like, get a pretty good sense of where birds are, where animals are. And so what would happen to me was I would go on these camping trips deep in the wilderness areas, and then I would come back to Rochester, and it would be like incredible the difference there would be so many more birds and animals in rochester uh -huh. city of a quarter million people than there was in the deep wilderness areas oh interesting and I started, uh, yeah so i started to think like well, what's what's going on here because i just thought like wilderness is perfect people are terrible you know like cities are crappy uh the wilderness is pure 
And so that started to like really shift on me. And I started to think, well, maybe that's not true. Maybe people can actually like influence habitat and create disturbance that actually increases wildlife populations and increases diversity. So once that seed was planted, I started to think, well, what if we had our disturbance was conscious and we did it, we did it consciously and we did it in such a way that it was like really, really beneficial. From there, it was just tree planting was the obvious answer. And I just started to see like, like an old field or a backyard with just grass. And I was like, man, what if you put an apple tree in the middle of that? Or what if you had a hickory tree in that hedgerow? Or what if you added a mulberry tree here or a chestnut or whatever? I just started doing that everywhere I could. You know, I was doing it on other people's land for a long time. Right. And then we bought our property and I was still doing that. I was working as a landscaper, but I didn't really like driving to work because our property is pretty far from everywhere. It's very rural. So I started daydreaming about how can I make money at home? And I read this book, You Can Farm by Joel Salatin. Oh, yes. It was like, you, you, you can make money at home. And I was just like, oh, my God, I can. It's possible. Like, I always thought farmers were just poor and worked really hard. That book kind of changed my perspective about that. So anyways, I, I started this nursery business, done really well, and I'm able to pay all my bills and live comfortably and feed my family. Nice. So here, So here I am. Yeah, exactly. And we had Joel Salatin on the podcast. You mentioned him uh, on episode 310, November 28th of 2017, so about a year and a half ago. And that was a fascinating article. That man knows what he's talking about. So in your book, uh, you've recently written a book, and it's coming out with Chelsea Green as the publisher. Tell us about it. Well, I, I just like to write. I always would write articles for our website. And people would comment to me that you should write a book I'm like yeah right when am I gonna have time to write a book you know I have three little kids and this business and it's just not gonna happen but anyway I sat down to write last winter and I just I don't know I just couldn't stop I would just I just started I kind of got hooked and I would go to lay down at night and I would just lay down for about two seconds and I would jump back up <laughs> come back down to the computer yep and I did that I just wrote every night after the kids went to bed for the whole winter. At the end of the winter, I had this manuscript, and I sent it in. They said they wanted to publish it, which was pretty exciting. But uh, but the book is basically just about it's about my work with trees and how I see them, how people can work with them. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think I think a lot of people can understand that concept. Oh yeah, we can partner with trees, but if it's just a concept, it's kind of meaningless and vague. It's like nature is beautiful. Okay, great. What are you going to do about it? And so. The book is like, trees want to work with you, and here's how to work with them. Yeah. You you have to like understand what they're offering, and you have to understand what their needs are. The book is all about how specifically to do that. So the book is called Trees of Power, 10 Essential Arboreal Allies. But then uh, at the top left of the cover, it says, The Organic Grower's Guide to Planting, Propagating, Culture, and Ecology of Trees. You've, uh, this is an extensive book here. Wow. Let's see here. Let's go to the end. We're at uh, 250 pages. And you're talking about mainly about 10 different, you call them ally trees. How did you come to that list of 10 trees? So the way I think of the benefits of trees is they kind of serve all these different functions. There's, There's so many different functions. And so I tried to pick a sampling from each Set. So there's trees that are really good for oil, you know, like like cooking and food oil. Uh-huh. And then there's trees that are really good for carbohydrates. And then there's trees that are 
good for protein and trees that are good for medicine and trees that are good for wildlife and fruit. You know, so I tried to like kind of get a sampling of 10 different kinds of trees and trees that are good for really just like their wood is so exceptional. Yeah. So I tried to have like a sampling of that. But the truth is I just kind of had to pick because the book would have never ended. Like the, <laughs> ch- the, chest, the chapter on chestnuts is like close to 30 pages. So it's like if I did, you know, 40 trees or 50 trees, it, yeah. it would have just been like too long. So maybe maybe uh, when I have time, I'll, I'll write a, a second volume to it. But yeah, there's I just kind of had to pick 10 trees that I really felt an affinity for. And when I was writing, I just what I would do is I would sit down and I would just like kind of close my mind down for a moment and then I would just let something come to me and it was like, oh, I want to write about ash trees today and then yeah. I would just write about ash. So basically what you did is you you distinguished 10 different categories and then you picked a tree or two for each of those categories. So I'm going to list the trees real quick and then I'm going to ask you for a favorite, okay? Sure. So chestnut, you call it the bread tree. Apples, the magnetic center, poplars, the homemaker, ash, maker of wood. These are all chapter names in your book. Mulberry, the giving tree. Elderberry, the caretaker. Hickory, pillars of life. Hazelnut, the provider. Black locust, the restoration tree. And beech, the root runner. Do you have a favorite on that list? Don't. I could talk about any one of them for a long time. I guess like probably like two of my favorites is chestnut and, hick- and hickory. Those are the ones I'm probably the most partial to. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us why? Yeah, yeah well, um, I guess I'll talk about uh, hickory. So hickory is kind of like a just the name hickory, especially for people in the East. It's like it's like a name that's steeped in folklore. You know, like you hear it in nursery rhymes and stuff. It's just like you hear the word hickory and you kind of want to be familiar with it. It's uh-huh. like something you want to have in your life, you know. When you see hickory trees in the winter around here, the silhouette is just like unbelievable. The the way the branches, they kind of like zigzag back and forth in this pattern. Uh-huh. And I don't know, the way they just stand up against the sky in the winter just calls to me. And they're so strong, you know, you can take a hickory branch or twig and you can just bend it right into a circle and it won't crack. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're, they're really strong. It's like some of the most dense, resilient wood on the planet. You know, they make axe handles out of hickory all over the world, but all the hickory comes from, from the east here, uh-huh. the eastern half of the U.S., and then there's there's so many things you can do with hickory. So like the wood is incredible. The fuel value is phenomenal. It's a beautiful hardwood. You can make all kinds of stuff with it. But the nuts are just like amazing. It, most people have never tasted uh, shagbark hickory. There's so there's different species of hickory. Uh-huh. Sh- shagbark. The flavor is just superb. It is the best flavored nut on the entire planet. There's if you eat like cashews, pine nuts, pistachios, whatever. And, and then you put like a hickory in there with the taste test. Hickory's gonna win. It is. It's wow. so good. It's really, really good uh, nut. And uh, people aren't familiar with it because it's just like a wild tree. It's it's difficult to crack the nuts and to get the nut meat out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's lots of there's lots of tricks for it. It hasn't been made commercial except for with one species of hickory, which is the pecan. Is a species of hickory, and pecans are uh, Caria ilionensis, which is it's one species of hickory, but it doesn't taste as good as shag bark, right? So, but the pecans crack easy. And then there's there's different, so there's other species of hickory. So the shag bark is really good just for like the nut meat. And then it's also good for making milk. So instead oh. of trying to crack crack the nuts out and like separate all the nut meat out, 
we just we just pound them all into uh, like a powder, basically shells and everything. I made like a mortar and pestle. Yep. We just crush crush them up and then boil it, and then you can strain it out. And the liquid, it's an incredible nut milk. It looks like chocolate milk, and it tastes amazing. And it's just like a really thick, hearty drink. You know, we drink it warm in the winter all the time. And uh, we've brought it to festivals and and sold hot cups of it to people. You can add things to it. You can put maple syrup in it or uh, Uh black birch or whatever or cocoa. It's just a great drink. So, But you can do the milk with some of the other lesser-known species of hickory, like the pig nut, which is a, a very difficult to shell nut, but also a good flavor. And then the species that I've become really excited about recently is Caria cordiformis, the bitter nut hickory. Mm-hmm. And that tree is a floodplain tree, but it'll also grow like on some uplands and stuff. And it, it's called bitter nut because if you crack the nut open and eat it, it's so bitter that your mouth will shrivel up. It's like the most astringent, horrible experience. And uh, I always kind of use them as like a joke to like, I used to take kids into the woods for outdoor education. Right. And I would have them, I would like sometimes just like mess around with some kid and be like, taste this nut, it's really good. And and you just see their face, you know, like, it's like, ah, it's it's terrible. (laughs) And so I always just thought of them as like this joke, you know, they're beautiful trees. They, They have some of the nicest bark and silhouettes of any hickory or any tree I've ever seen. But I didn't really think of them as valuable. And then I recently learned from this guy, Sam Thayer, that the bitterness is water soluble and it's not in the oil. And if you look at a bitter nut, it, it's it's totally different from all the other hickories. It's, it does not have a thick shell. The shell is so thin, you could easily just break it with your hands, kind of like a peanut uh-huh. almost. Right. And then that it's not like filled, even the inside of the nut, it's not like marbled with shell. It's it's almost all kernel. And that kernel has an 80% oil content. And the Whoa. bitterness is in the is the bitterness is in the water. The bitterness wow. is not in the oil. Right. And so because the shell is so thin and because it has such a high kernel to shell ratio, uh-huh. you can just take the whole nut without shelling it and put it in a commercial oil press and just squeeze those nuts without cracking them and you can extract the oil. And the oil is, is amazing. It tastes exactly like shagbark hickory. So it has that like superb flavor. It's a great cooking oil. Uh, we put it on like salads, popcorn, um, it's, it's a wonderful oil. And so it's like this amazing tree crop and uh-huh. there's trees in the hedgerows around here, especially like by some of the farm fields where they're f- fully open canopy. And there's this one tree down the road, a couple miles down the road. It's, it's gotta be like a 200 year old tree, this bitter nut. I collected 60 gallons of nuts. So, you know, maybe like, a, like a dozen five gallon buckets right. filled with the nuts in the shell. And then we brought them to this guy, Sam, there, his oil press, and he pressed them out. And we got seven and a half gallons of oil from that. And it, and it was only like a day and a half of, of work collecting nuts. Wow. It's like, a huge, it's like a huge yield. It's like way more than enough for family for, for like a day or two of work. And on a commercial level, it's like, damn, who wants to buy hickory oil, you know, like, it's amazing how easy it is to sell it. Oh, I'm sure. It's just really, it's a really high quality oil, and it's it doesn't involve any plowing or tillage. It doesn't involve any spraying. You know, the ecosystem is intact. The mm-hmm. tree has other benefits to wildlife besides the nuts. You know, it feeds ton, like over a hundred species of Lepidoptera, butterflies and moths. Birds can nest there. Animals can live. You know, if you go to uh, 
you know, like a soybean field or a, or a rapeseed where canola, you know, canola comes from. If you go to the canola fields up in Saskatchewan, it might as well be the moon. There's nothing growing. There's yeah. nothing alive there. They they erase the entire ecosystem. The entire ecosystem is obliterated. Nothing is left. Yep. There's not a, there's not even a mouse that can live there. And all that carbon is is being pulled right out of the soil as it's tilled. All this destruction is happening so we can grow these canola seeds, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the the bitternut hickory is just right there. It's like growing on the edge of the freaking canola field and what if we just had like a row of those bitter nuts down the middle of the field and the yields are phenomenal because the trees are three-dimensional they're just like you know one foot tall plant there's nuts stacked from top to bottom on a 90 foot tall tree hundreds you of know, pounds i would guess more it's that it's in the thousands and it's like what's going on when you have literally in my county maybe like a million gallons of oil fall on the ground of really good cooking oil, nobody picks it up, and instead we turn around and we just just scrape the earth clean and plant canola seeds. So it's like that's why uh, hickories are yeah. like they offer like so many different from like the kernel to the milk to the oil, those three things. And then with the kernels, we also make a candy, and it's it's just incredible. We take equal parts uh, shagbark kernels, uh-huh. butter, and maple syrup. And you just stir that on low heat until it turns into like this taffy. And you give somebody a piece of that, they, their eyes pop wide open. Like you've never had candy that good. So I don't know. Hickory is just like such a fun tree to me with, with so many possibilities. And they're already here. Yeah, exactly. Are you familiar with the term permaculture? Yeah. So one of the things that we talk about in permaculture is stacking functions. Are you familiar with that term? Yeah. So in stacking functions, what we do is we look at an asset, in this case, a hickory tree, and see how many different things that it can contribute, not to us, but to the environment. And you have just laid out an an amazing story about everything that a hickory tree does, all the way from the food benefits, along with oil and nuts, to the wood Anything else there? Well, I think I think it's really important to understand that our native I'm not like a big native plant person, but I really understand the value of native plants. So all of our almost all of the insects that live around here actually are specific to specific plants mm-hmm. and they've kind of evolved. So like many caterpillars will only feed on one or two species of tree or or they'll stay in like it's in the same genus. And so if you have a, a hickory there, you're supporting all these different caterpillars, right? And then all of the that's what birds eat. Birds aren't the birds eat berries and stuff and but really and they eat seeds or whatever. But the like the bulk of a bird's diet is, is insects for it's the bugs. most part. Like our yep. so, our songbirds are built on insects and insect populations are crashing. It's not even like it's not even funny. Like hardly anybody's talking about it, but if you go to like the Xerxes Society, it, it's just incredible the amount of species that are going extinct every year as far as insects there are species going extinct that aren't even documented that we don't even know it mm-hmm. never knew existed and so one of the biggest benefits of having hickories or other native trees in the landscape is that they they they're like a foundation of an entire world of an entire ecosystem mm-hmm. so you know if you appreciate things like cedar waxwings and robins and sparrows then hickories are a big part of it. And we think, oh, hickories, they feed squirrels. You know, they make nuts. But 
But no, they feed so much more than that. Wow. I was going to ask you for a second tree, but I think I'm going to ask you back on the podcast so we can talk about some of these other trees. That's why I couldn't talk about more than 10 in the book. <laughs> yeah, there you go. In your bio, you shared with us that you raise 20,000 trees a year. That's raising and propagating them. Tell me about that process because that's a significant contribution to our our environment. Yeah, well, um, when I first started, you know, I just had like a couple dozen trees in pots. It seemed intimidating. It was like hard. I was like, how do I keep track? Of? There's like <laughs> right. 50 trees here. And, and it was like a lot of work. But then, you know, as time goes on, you get more comfortable. And I, once I started shifting into bare root, it was much easier to grow a lot of trees and not have to move pots all over the place. And then my beds have gotten better and better over the years. So I, it's not like in the spring, I'm like, oh, I have to like make a bed. And it's all established at this point. So it's not as much work as it sounds. I, I basically have certain things I grow from seed, certain things I grow from cuttings. I do some grafting, and then I have different shrubs that I layer and stool layer. Yeah, I mean, it just looks kind of like a big garden. Like if you came here, you'd you'd think, there's not 20,000 trees here. This place <laughs> is, a, is a dump, you know. There's like stuff everywhere, projects all over. It's messy. There's Three, if three little kids, there's toys everywhere, but it's just like the backyard, and it's just it's probably about three quarters of an acre is the nursery area, uh-huh. and it's just these beds. They're about four feet by twenty feet, and each bed, depending on what kind of tree it is, might have you know five hundred trees in it. Some of them might have more than that, and some might have less. So, like for for mulberries, for example, I basically just take mulberry seeds, I cast them into the soil like grass seed, rake them in real lightly, and it comes up about as thick as grass, and I'll raise thousands of mulberries that way. And uh, they'll grow so close together, you know, they're just like an inch apart, And then, but they're only there for one year. And then I dig them up in the fall, either store them for the winter or uh, sell them, and then I, or then I'll sell them in the spring. They get uh, shipped all all over all over the place mostly throughout the northeast Mm -hmm. uh, but also some in the midwest and the south it just started out as like fun to like grow trees i think it was just like really satisfying to like see these wow like whoa it just started it you know these these seeds it's like so exciting to see when they first come up you know anything any gardener knows what that feels like except it's different when it's a tree it's like it's like wow like this thing is only like an hour old but uh, it might live for way past when I'm dead. And then, you know, I love rooting cuttings and grafting's pretty awesome. And then in like, we have like our garden with all these berry bushes and stuff. So they just, I just keep mulching them so deeply that they layer and tip layer. And I am able to pull new plants off of them at my leisure. How cool is that? So one of the things I noticed is you said that you're growing mulberries from seed, and it was always my understanding that it was best if we wanted the genetic stability to grow from cuttings. Can you talk about that difference, growing from seeds and growing from cuttings? Yeah, it's a really important point, actually. Um, So there's a huge difference between clonal propagation and uh, sexual propagation. So cloning is when we grow things from cuttings, or layering or grafting. And then sexual propagation is when we grow things from seed. 
there's nothing wrong with clonal propagation. I do lots of it, and you find it in nature all the time. You know, aspen groves are supreme examples of of clonal propagation. Cattail stands are, you know, these are plants that it may look like um, like a thousands and thousands of them, but it's actually one genetically identical organism. But uh, sexual propagation is really what we usually see in nature. It's just like you said, you do not preserve the genetic identity of the plant. So if you grow an apple tree from a seed and then, you know, the seedling that comes is going to have fruit totally different from its parent. Just like if I had a kid, my kid would not be exactly like me. And so with some species, a lot of traits will come through from seed. Mm -hmm. Like with service berry, for example, service berry seedlings will be really similar to their parents. Apples will be like nothing similar. That that doesn't really bother me. It, it depends what your goals are, right? Like if your goal is like, you're like, I want an orchard and I have room for six trees and they better all have amazing fruit, then yeah, you're going to want cloned trees. Mm-hmm. But if you're like, oh, I'm planting a hedgerow to uh, do a silvopasture system and I'm going to feed like sheep and, and cows and pigs apples and persimmons, then yeah, who cares? Just growing from seed. I went to a talk with uh, Phil Rudder once, the guy that started the American Chestnut Foundation, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he currently does uh, badger set hazel research. Anyways, the first sentence out of his mouth was just like totally blew me away, and I never forgot it. And he just stood up there in front of this group. It was all these people from like Rutgers, and they were all like 100% devoted to cloning these hazelnut plants mm-hmm. uh, through, t- through tissue culture. And he just stood up and he said, a clone is an evolutionary dead end. And I just mm. love that. You know, it's yes. so true. So it is. if we, if we want to like grow some fruit trees for ourselves, then sure, like let's graft them. Let's make it so the fruit is awesome. But if we want to find new varieties or if we want to expand genetic diversity, then you gotta, you gotta let the trees make love. You gotta let them have babies, you know? So that's what seedlings are all about. And seedlings are so easy to raise there you can raise so many more yeah and so they're so much cheaper so for example like mulberry seedlings i sell mulberry seedlings for different prices so the best price you'll get is like we have i have small ones that are like little ones in the nursery that were kind of shaded they're like basically three to 12 inch seedlings right and i sell them for less they're like i think they're like 90 cents so if you buy a tree for 90 cents and then, okay, so why don't you just plant like 50 of them, you know? So but for that price, if you wanted to get a grafted mulberry, you'd have to go to a specialty nursery, and it might cost you 35 or $40 for one tree. So for $35, you you know, you could plant, you know, 30 or 50, whatever. I can't do the math in my head right now. That's <laughs> all right. But it's you know all what good. I'm yeah. They're a lot cheaper. It's pretty fun to watch and see if you have room and space for it. You know, I planted some mulberries from seed. Maybe I think I, there was these three that I planted right near the house about eight years ago. And then a couple of years ago, they all made fruit. And I went around with my with my middle son, Cyrus, and we were picking the fruit. And one of them had red berries. One of them had white berries. And one of them had black berries. And they all had tasted a little different. And it was like fun, you know, it's like there's nothing wrong with growing things from seed. And it kind of bothers me. That there's just like negative connotation about growing fruit trees from seed when almost all the old varieties that we've ever found were just just wild seedlings and then all the new varieties every single one is also grown from seed so you don't have to just rely on universities to grow 
fruit trees from seed. You mm-hmm. can do your own experimenting and breeding, and who knows what you'll find. I've been playing with that here at the Urban Farm with peaches. I let uh, peach seeds germinate right. and grow for three or four years to see what kind of fruit I get off of them. I'm hoping to find a, a yeah. jackpot with it. I was going to say peaches are one of the best trees to grow from seed. They're so easy. It, like Basically, a peach from seed, you can get it to fruit and flower within two or three years sometimes. Yep. And they usually come true from seed. I planted some peaches from seed, and we're, we're pretty cold here, so most years uh, peach flower buds don't survive the winter but i had this one peach tree it was seven years old before it actually survived its its buds uh, flower buds survived the winter Mm -hmm. and it made this fruit and i remember going up and tasting the fruit and i bit into it and i said to myself oh my god this is the best peach i've ever had and then uh, my friend came over like a couple hours later and i was like dude you got to try this peach tell me what you think and he walked up there and he took a bite out of his peach, and he looked up at me, and he said, this is the best peach I've ever had. And I was like, <laughs> nice. yeah, it's yeah. a good tree. Yeah, growing trees from seed is, is really good, a good time. Yeah. I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. I don't really, like, ever think of life as, like, failing or succeeding. Uh-huh. But, like, I can think of times I really messed up, and I wish I had done things different, so... Like one of those times was I, when I was first starting the nursery business and it was, at first it was like really hard to sell trees. Like I just couldn't figure out like, who are these customers? Like, Uh where are they? Right. And then I got a deal with uh, Fedco, which is, they, they would, they're a big seed company, big nursery. Yeah. Yeah. But they also have a tree catalog. Ah. And, uh, and so they were like, we'll buy certain varieties of your trees. And we'll buy them every single year and we'll buy lots of them. And it was like, this was going to be like half my family's income for the year. And it was such a good deal. And I was like, I'll do it. But the way you do it is you're, you're like on a contract. So they're like, we want 250 grafted persimmons. We want 250 chestnuts or whatever. They would tell you these numbers and then you got to come up with these trees and the trees have to be like amazing. Um, so if they wanted, say, 250 chestnuts, I would try to grow like 2,000. And then I would pick out the best 250 for them. Oh, um, nice. So anyways, it, it was like a ton of work, but it felt like a really good deal. And as it was like the first year I was doing this with them, I uh, was supposed to grow all these persimmons and I was going to graft them. So I, I actually, they gave me like so much notice. So I actually raised my own rootstocks. So I knew I had the best right. old hardy rootstocks. Mm-hmm. I knew where the genetics were from. And I raised these rootstocks. And I wanted to be able to have time enough in the spring to graft them. And so, like, in the fall, I was talking to my friend who works at this other nursery, Cummins Nursery. And I was telling him, like, I, you know, like, I wish I had a place to store the trees for the winter so that I could get them out before spring hits and start grafting. And he was like, he was like, what if you just, like, put them in, like, a big pot and then just mulch the pot, like, really well. And then you could just break the pot free of the mulch and uh, bring it inside and, and thaw it out. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. So I put all of my uh, rootstocks in there. Uh-oh. And then in, in like February or March, I, I got that big tub of them out. This was like putting all my eggs in one basket. Yep, that I got was... that tub out, I thawed it out, and I got all my cyan wood, which I had to buy. I spent like, you know, several hundred dollars on cyan wood. I got all my stuff out and I and I pulled my first rootstock out and it's just the roots are just covered in mold. I was like, oh man. So I pulled the next one out and they were all destroyed. They were all dead, covered in mold. That everything in that pot just rotted. 
So I was like really bummed and it wasn't just like, oh, that sucks. It was kind of like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Like, I have to make money this year. This was going to be like, you know, this, this was going to be like $10,000. Uh, and, uh, you know, at the time that, that would have been like a huge portion of our income, right. but it wasn't even just the persimmons. I started, so I brought in all the other pots cause I put everything in pots after he said, suggested that and my all the chestnuts were dead. Like I had lost like 80% of my nursery. I was really stressed out. But, you know, what are you going to do? So don't put, don't put all your that. eggs in one basket. Yeah, or just, like, when things go wrong, like, just start looking, okay, what else am I going to do? So that's what I did. I, I didn't even, like, think, like, oh, oh, no. I mean, I did for a minute, but I just thought, okay, well, what am I going to do now? And what am I going to grow this year, and how am I going to make money? And I just started growing as much other stuff as I could that year to make up for that loss. I want to have just a, a great year anyways. Our nursery has actually grown every single year, which starting to get like kind of insane. Like I kind of want it to stop growing. <laughs> but, uh, Understand that. So that, that leads into the next question. What do you consider your biggest success? Yeah. It's like another thing. Like, I'm like, what's the success? Like, I don't know. Like people can be like, you could make a million dollars, have uh, all this uh, acclaim and then like be miserable and uh, commit suicide. You know, people do that all the time. So like, I don't know what the word success really means. Like I, I love my, my kids like so much they're they're healthy they like hanging out with me uh-huh. i consider that like probably my biggest success and then uh you know i, I like wrote this book I, I make money those things are i guess would be like the success in the eyes of society but uh if, if you know if you don't feel good in your own mind you know when you lay down at night if you feel stressed out and you're just like working things over in your head over and over and you have this anxiety and you wake up in the morning and you're like oh my god i got like so much stuff to do like that you might look successful but yeah. who cares right like so it's like really important to me that i'm enjoying my time here as a human so, so might i, I su- yeah might i suggest standing back looking at you 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 seem and sound happy you're doing what you love you have an awesome family. That sounds pretty successful to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's a word, right? And so people get caught up on words. Exactly. So what drives you? I have so much energy. There's thoughts like firing a million miles an hour. And I just do my best to like navigate them and to, uh, to not go crazy. You mm-hmm. know, I just try to, I, I do a regular meditation practice so that I can notice the thoughts and I just, it's it's like what drives me is just this constant flow of energy directly right. from the source of creation, and it it pushes me like every day to like wake up and just like, and it fills my mind with ideas. Like I I have more projects than than time in my life, and so I try to just like calm it down and and pick the best ones. But the, definitely the driving force is the force of creation. Beautiful. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Uh, I think it's a really tough question, but I, I kind of want to say Nature's Garden by Samuel Thayer. Uh, it's just a fantastic book. It's on wild edible plants, but it's like way more than that. And each plant is a story and you don't just learn, okay, you can eat this plant. It's kind of like, this is how you can know this, the whole history and story of this plant. But he writes it in this way that's so engaging. His writing is incredible, and uh, he, he has all this in-depth experience. Uh, Sam Thayer was, uh, he started foraging for plants when he was like five, and now he's, you know, in his 40s, and he's the best. 
wild food author ever, but it's, like I said, it's more than wild food. Uh Um, But Nature's Garden is my favorite of his three books. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Um, I want to say, see with your eyes and not your mind. So what that means is when you look around in the world, you can have all these judgments and ideas about what things are, but just be quiet for a moment and really just see with your actual eyeballs and like, see what are you actually looking at? And I think if you're able to do that, you'll start to see things from new and wider perspectives. And it's, it's kind of like you, you will be surprised more and more often, the more you can see with your eyes and not your mind. We want to thank Akiva and the folks over at Chelsea Green Publishing as we have three copies of Trees of Power that need a new home. And we get to share them with you, our listening audience. Email us at podcast at urbanfarm.org with the subject line, I am a tree ally. Make sure to provide us with your first and last name and mailing address. And we will pick three random emails from the first 50 people that respond. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Akiva. Sure. I, I really appreciate you having me, Greg. Oh, my gosh. It's been really informative. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Um, the best would be to just contact me through our website. If you look up Twisted Tree Farm, we should come right up. It's twisted-tree.net. But uh, if you just Google Twisted Tree Farm, I'm sure we're there. And uh, that has all our contact Excellent. info. And, yeah, I'm the only one. So. Excellent. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash twisted tree. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.